The Aboriginal peoples of the Kulin Nations are the traditional custodians of the lands now named City of Greater Dandenong. We acknowledge, recognise and respect Elders past, present and emerging and their continuing connections to climate, culture and country. the Open Book Podcast, books, events and conversations with the team at Greater Dandenong Libraries. In this month's episode, Lee and I book chat about the award-winning novel The Yield by Tara June Winch, and we hear reviews from Rosanna on The Book of Delights by Ross Gay, and from Asia on Terra Nullis by Claire G. Coleman. We feature an interview with critic, researcher, editor and Young Australian of the Year nominee Leah Jing McIntosh about how she founded Liminal Magazine and her latest anthology, Collisions. To wrap up, Mina gives us some bookmatch highlights featuring translated stories, and we have some light relief with a few jokes from children at Dandenong Library. Hope you enjoy. Okay, I'm here with Lee today. Hi, Lee. Hey. And we're going to have a chat about The Yield by Tara June Winch which was published in 2019. It's been a very awarded book. It's won the Miles Franklin Literary Award in 2020. Also the Australian Booksellers' Choice Award, um, the Book of the Year, People's Choice and Christina Stead Prize for Fiction in the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards and also the Voss Literary Prize 2020. So a very highly commended book. Just to give a bit of an overview of the story, um, it focuses on the character of August Gundwindi, and she has returned to her hometown of Massacre Plains for her grandfather Albert's funeral. She's been away for 10 years living in England. She finds her nana, Elsie, packing up to leave their family house, the farm called Prosperous, as a tin mining company are taking over the land and uh, she, she has to leave. August also finds that Albert, her grandfather, was working on a dictionary, a dictionary of Wurundjeri language and also looking into the cultural significance of the area as perhaps a way of stopping this impending mining. And the story is built up through... Um, three different perspectives, three different narratives. Lee, do you want to have a bit of a chat about that? Yeah, so there's a really interesting form to this book that um, I think pretty immediately becomes apparent to the reader. So as as you mentioned, the first narrative is Albert or Poppy Gondawindi, um, August's grandfather, writing in the form of a dictionary and it's not like a traditional dictionary it's a dictionary that um, will mention a word in in the native language uh, Wiradjuri and then um, and then Poppy tells a story about that and 
gives you the history into that word. And it's much more than just a definition. It, it, it really shows that words are powerful and words are loaded with history and um, they're ever moving and ever, ever changing. So that's, mm-hmm. that's one part of uh, the story. The other part, as you mentioned, is August Gondawindi, um, her story of, as you mentioned, coming back to Massacre Plains, her home after 10 years away from, um, away from there in England. And that comes with its own real complexities, which we'll get into almost about halfway through. There is a third narrative that is introduced into the novel and... That is a very interesting letter written by a man um, called Reverend Ferdinand Greenleaf. And it's a letter that he wrote as a missionary. Um, He's a white man and he wrote this to the British Society of Ethnography in 1915, detailing his time in Australia and very much as a quote unquote good white man to the natives and it's it's quite jarring and the the letter is um divided up into a few chapters um and that particular letter also does reintroduce itself uh throughout august's story and um and throughout poppy's story and there's there's these not super obvious ways but there there is quite a lot of interwovenness if that's a word of all the stories um i feel like tara could have done it in a very yeah very obvious way but it's 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 a little bit more subtle Um, yeah i i guess it's befitting of a, a literary style novel and a novel that's won so many prizes um in the kind of a complex way or more complex way that it's structured and the way those strands kind of um, meld together as you keep reading um, and discovering more about you know each part of the story and the different connections. I suppose we should start off with um, ultimately what did you think of The Yield? Yeah, I, I did enjoy it in the end. I um, I think it is a challenging book to read on a couple of levels. Um, firstly, the subject matter itself um, and that you're reading about, you know, these um, bad things that happened to the Indigenous people being um, taken away from their families, the whole sort of stolen generation kind of thing, um, removed from their culture, from the land and also this really has a focus on the language you know how their the language was taken away from them they weren't able to learn their indigenous language they had to learn english Um, and we can see all the nuances and complexities um, that are tied up in that language and and what a loss that would have been not not to have that language Um, and then you've got the the way that the story is constructed um, in itself and we've talked about you know, listening to the audio, which we both did, I think, and um, that you can sort of get lost in it a bit. It's kind of, it is poetic and lyrical at times, but you can kind of forget, oh, who am I listening to now? Who's the narrator now and which time 
frame are we talking about? So from, from that point of view, it, it can get a little bit confusing. Um, but I think as, as you go, or as I went through the book, I sort of, it sort of came together more and more and I came to appreciate it more and more. So in the end, I found it a really quite a satisfying read. Yes, yeah, so did I. I, yeah, I also um, chose to go the route of audiobook, um, I suppose, because we're a little bit pressed for time. And the, the audiobook, I, I think I would love to go back and read the, the physical book because you are hearing the three narratives in the same voice. And um, while there are yeah, definitely similarities and parts that overlap, um, you do also have three unique experiences. And I, I, I could imagine myself reading those on paper in a with a different voice in my head. So mm. um, I think the audiobook um, is great and it's really well read and it's captivating. Um, but for this form, um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm eager to, to see what my experience of it would be like as a, as a physical book. That being said, I just, as, as you mentioned, it is a bit of a slow burn. It does take a little while, but I really ended up just absolutely adoring it and really loving the characters. And I really started to like the form of three narratives kind of broken up chapter by chapter. And I think August's story was really captivating straight from mm -hmm. the start. It's, it's definitely mm -hmm. the part that draws you in because you're there with her. And when she comes back home from England... Um, it's yeah. very captivating her, the way that she now navigates the relationship with her grandmother and, and eventually with her mother and with her aunties and the people that she, she left behind. Um, mm. yeah, because, um, she, she is coming back home after a long absence and, um, she's now sort of in her late 20s, I think. So she probably left when she was about 18. And we find out perhaps why, some of the reasons why she left. There was a lot of trauma that happened to her. Um, and, and she's been back in her old, the old house where she lived with her grandparents. She's reminiscing about, you know, times when they were growing up. Um, she was there with her sister. Um, but we find out also that um, her sister went missing and she was, uh, when she was about 10 years old, I think, and August was nine years old. Mm. So everything changed for her then at that point. Yeah. And you, you slowly start to learn the reason of Jetta's disappearance and it's, um, it's, yeah, definitely quite confronting and you can you can really understand this complex character of August a lot more as the novel goes on. Mm. Um, certainly doesn't give you everything at once. Yeah, and because they'd come to, she and her sister had come to live with their grandparents because their own parents um, went to jail mm. for sort of drug-related offences. She later found out that her father had died there's not a lot of information about that, but her father died and her mother was still in jail. 
um, then her sister disappears. So that's a lot of trauma for a young nine-year-old girl to deal with. Yeah. Yeah, so we can see why, um, yeah, perhaps why she went away and why um, coming back was so, um, you know, full of emotion and, and a real journey for her. Yeah. I also enjoyed how her story wasn't so linear. Um, like it drew you in because it was um, quite easy to take hold of, but then some of the most touching parts of of her part of the story were her just talking about her and Jeddah as kids and it was very relatable, them writing letters to Agro and, um, <laughs> like, there was just a lot of really sweet moments and it yeah made me think of my siblings and just like the yeah the the things you would share with them yeah it's... yeah just stuff they would do and how they would kind of tease each other and there was a bit where she locked Jetta outside and ate her easter egg that um yeah. Jetta had been saving and just nibbling at you know for weeks and weeks <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah classic stuff like that that kids do yeah Albert's part of the novel, it does take a little bit longer to get into. I think by the end, though, that for me was the most captivating part of it because, as we mentioned, he was he was writing a, a dictionary, but it and it was filled with stories, but it wasn't so much autobiographical. When you realise that the Wiradjuri language is a, a don't know if it's extinct at this point, but it's um, it's very quickly disappearing, and this is truly like one of the most tragic parts of colonization is having to witness your your language disappear through generations, and yeah, I I, I found it quite um, it was beautifully like poetic but it was very heartbreaking and um mm -hmm. yeah there was there was a lot of truth telling in that yeah and especially as we know he decided to really start compiling this dictionary as he was told that he didn't have long to live you know yeah. that he had this cancer um and, and that he probably you know that would take him out um, so he really, yeah, that really prompted him to write all of this stuff down. And also because he knew, um, he knew the significance of it for his, for his people, for the community. Um, and that this was, was part of their, their heritage, um, that needed, that needed to be recorded. I suppose that brings us to the third part of this story, which is, of course, Reverend Ferdinand Greenleaf and uh, his letter to the Society of Ethnography. Um, I, I have, I, I, so I listened to a couple of podcasts um, or like different and read a few reviews that talked about this and they, and some people found the inclusion of his letter somewhat distracting and unnecessary and um, kind of gives, you know, even more of a voice to 
like settlers and colonizers in this mm. story where it'd be yeah nice to not not have that nice to have a a story that is somewhat decolonized um i found it an interesting inclusion um and especially interesting where it just kind of came in halfway um it does give somewhat more context in the history but his character is very flawed in that um he has empathy and he somewhat to an extent knows what is very obviously right and wrong but then there are just subtle disturbing points of his letter such as you know there's a part where he's explaining how he was teaching the kids a connection to land and spirituality and it's like the kids have the kids already have ancestors that do that and it's yeah, his is very much framed in a very Christian religion and, you know, he can see that, that Indigenous Australians, you know, shouldn't be killed and shouldn't be, you know, witness to the, or um, victims of the mass genocide that was colonisation. Um, but his empathy doesn't really move into substantial action, um... And he, he calls certain characters, you know, his friends, but it's, yeah, you don't hear the other side of whether they feel he's a friend. Yeah, I guess it was interesting, um, sort of in terms of uh, the whole history, you know, it, it kind of, um, the area had started as a, as a mission, um, when you know colonizers came in and then it became a station that um, Albert was involved in and then he ended up living on it as a farm and um, uh, the, the other area was um, belonged to the Falstaff family at Southerly House and they let the Gundawindis um, stay on and work work the land and sort of have ownership of the prosperous house so you sort of get that kind of perspective of how time moved along mm. um but yeah I often felt yeah just really uncomfortable uh, reading the reverend's sections because you could see that he was like you said he was a good man in inverted commas um <laughs> you know kind of trying to do what he thought was the right thing um but it was, you know, he was part of the problem really as well because he yeah. was part of taking children away from their families, um, removing them from their culture, um, from their um, customs and, and from their language. Um, so it was all, yeah, it, it was all kind of, kind of mixed up. Um, and in the end, I think... I don't know. In the end, do you think he kind of had more perspective when he was writing his letter and he was um, near the end of his life? Do you think he had a bit more perspective then that perhaps what he was involved in was not the best for the Indigenous people? Yeah, I think he was somewhat aware that... Um, the systems in which he relied upon for justice or for equity were flawed. 
Mm. I think he he realised that him, you know, reporting these things to, you know, officials and the government was a little bit useless. But then the whole form of this letter is him writing a letter in the end <laughs> to, a, to a British society. So mm. um, he still... He he still does believe in those systems of of justice and making things right, and I, I guess he he's aware that it's not perfect, um, and that there's more he can do. Yeah, he's it's got some redeeming aspects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you know you can say, well, he was the man of his times. He was the man of the church. Um, he did what he thought was right but you know we can see looking back on it you know how how problematic and tragic it it actually was yeah 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 it's not a not a simple good or bad kind of no 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 and I guess a a lot of things are not black and white in the story um either um, like there are, without giving away too much, there are family members um, within August's family who have done things that are, are bad mm. um, and yet somehow the family has to reconcile that because they're still family. Yeah. Um, I thought that that was interesting. Um, perhaps they don't sort of... Um, that they may take their own form of retribution, yes. um, which Albert does in um, one case. But in other cases, they just sort of, they just have to accept that, um, you know, there's good and bad in people and sometimes those people might be part of your family. So, yeah, that is, I suppose, a small discussion where I'm sure we've definitely missed things in such a um such a dense books but that is our discussion of the yield by tara june winch yeah it's it's complex it's challenging but i think um the book is worth it and i would recommend it um it's ultimately very rewarding and um a very hopeful story in the end that i think people will get a lot out of what animal drops from clouds? A reindeer. <laughs> Why are dogs such bad dancers? They have two left feet. What What did the snowman say to the other snowman? Do you smell carrots? <laughs> what musical instrument is found in the bathroom? A tuba toothpaste. <laughs> Hi, I'm Emma from the Greater Dandenong Libraries Programs team and I'm here to tell you all about what's happening in our libraries this May. This month we're celebrating Library and Information Week which showcases the many resources and services that libraries provide to the community. It aims to promote the value of reading and literacy, the importance of Australia's book industry and the role of libraries. The theme for Library and Information Week 2021 is Adventures in Space and Time and we invite you to spend some time in our spaces to celebrate reading and literacy by participating in a range of programs. 
Don't miss out on our Libraries After Dark program featuring a fun and relaxed zine workshop with artist Ashley Ronning using sustainable and recycled materials, or our Making Sense workshops where you'll learn to make candles, soap and incense. To acknowledge Reconciliation Week this year, libraries are presenting a very special event, Forever for the Peoples of the Kulin Nations. Join us at Springvale Library on Thursday the 27th of May to hear directly from cultural leaders and elders of the Kulin Nations on what sustainability looks like for Greater Dandenong's First Peoples. Registrations are required for all library events and places are limited, so for more information about our programs and to register, please visit our website. And now... Lee's interview with Liminal founder Leah Jing McIntosh. Leah Jing McIntosh is a critic, researcher and the founding editor of Liminal magazine. She's been named a Victorian nominee for Young Australian of the Year, one of Forbes Asia's 30 Under 30 class of 2020 and one of Asia Link's inaugural 40 Under 40 most influential Asian Australians. She has produced events, hosted and participated in panels and run workshops for communities. Lee is also a judge in a number of literary prizes and arts grants and currently sits on the advisory committees for both the, the UNESCO City of Literature and the Emerging Writers Festival. And we're lucky enough to have her join us on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us, Leah. <laughs> hey, Lee. <laughs> Thanks for having me. (laughs) You're very welcome. Um, For anyone who's new to your work, can you tell us about Liminal? Yeah, of course. So in short, Liminal magazine is a platform for the Asian Australian experience. Um, We also publish art and writing by writers of colour. It's very much driven by my personal experience as an Asian Australian and by my own ethics, which revolve around racial equity and justice. So back in 2016 and 2017, and even now, we were and often are not the writers of our own narrative. And I really just wanted to see this change. So I started publishing long form interviews with Asian Australian writers, artists, and just creatives at the beginning of 2017. Um, And it was only supposed to be about 20 interviews, but it has become bigger and bigger. Um, And uh, we've now published almost 170, which is wild to me. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's much bigger than I ever thought it would be. Um, We also uh, are a literary magazine. We published a few print publications of interviews. Last year, some award-winning art and writing. And as of last Monday, a four-part comics anthology we're currently releasing digitally to celebrate four years of Liminal. So yeah, it's, it's a small project. <laughs> it's, I can imagine it takes up a lot of your time. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I think one of the main reasons we got you on is to chat about Collisions, Fictions of the Future, which we have in the library. Um, it's an anthology. How did that come about? Yeah, oh, I'm so excited to talk about a book to a library <laughs> or to a librarian, <laughs> I guess. Um, so in 2019, I launched the Liminal Fiction Prize for Writers of Colour, uh, the first of its kind in Australia. It came out of research I did around the history of Australian literary prizes, so looking at winners of 
any Australian Literary Prize in the last century, it became clear that there was this really strong bias towards white writers. And I created the prize as an intervention. Um, there's this really good quote by writer Samuel R. Delaney, and he's writing to this young writer, um, and he says, can I, should I, can I read the quote? <laughs> of course, yes. <laughs> okay. um, he says, the fact that you are writing, submitting, and winning awards means you have already crashed through the greatest and most destructive hurdle racism sets in our way. The one that gives so many of us a self-image that says, who am I to think I could ever write anything worth reading, that I have anything w worth saying, or that anyone might take joy in hearing it? How dare I think I have the right to speak, write, or be read? And I, I just, oh, so <laughs> I just really wanted to like help chip away at that destructive hurdle by creating this prize that just very clearly stated, I want to read, we want to read your writing, we believe it to be good, and you have the right to speak, to write, and to be read. Um, so, 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 sorry, long story. But essentially, Collisions is actually a collection of the 16 long-listed pieces from that prize. So four editors, myself, Shertan, Adalia Nash Hussain, and Hassan Abul, worked with the long-listed authors on their pieces, and we very carefully curated them into this anthology. It's wonderful. Are you able to talk about some of the writers that are featured? Ah, oh, they're incredible. They're just they're phenomenal people. Um, <laughs> I just, yeah, it's so great. Um, we kind of, so we start off, we kind of structured it around a collision. So the first part is about bodies and one of the first story, one of my favourite stories in the collection is the first story, it's See You Tomorrow by Claire Cow, And it's about ostensibly about a, a, a beautiful old Chinese grandma meeting an old friend. Um, and it kind of comes into being that she used to be very much in love with this old friend. And it's this beautiful winding of two stories, one set firmly in the present and then one in the past. And it just comes together. Oh, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> But it's it's so it's so beautiful, um, and I'm so excited to see what else Claire does in the future. Um, and then, of course, we have our winning piece by Bryant Apollonio, um, which is um, also in this section where it's it's actually two stories that have been placed um, next to each other. So you kind of have to figure out how to read them but they come together on really interesting points. It's just kind of, it's very, it, it thinks through like a relationship with the reader um, and kind of asks them to collaborate with them, which I think is really special. Yeah, um, yeah I, oh, I could go on about this collection. <laughs> it's just every single story. I, yeah, I just, I'm a really big fan of these, these writers. Most of them are, still haven't published their first book, but we had this incredible review last year, which is like, I'm waiting for every, a book from every single pe person from this collection. So I'm, <laughs> yeah, you know, and you're like, ah, oh, I just want like everyone to get on it. <laughs> it sounds like a really wonderful starting place for these new writers as well. Yeah. To be part of I'm, this anthology. It's, it's been so much fun, um, like watching their careers 
like not grow from it but alongside it and being like oh we also published this amazing person who keeps <laughs> keeps kicking goals <laughs> obviously we also have um Claire Coleman who's very like very tenured incredible writer and I can't believe she is in the book um and that's the very final story just to kind of end the book with a bang um but yeah it, it's every story is so different but like it's quite interesting how you can really find through lines um uh yeah <laughs> i'm not being very articulate <laughs> no no that was that was kind of a, a mean question to, to try and get you to just oh, feature no. a few but i'm sure um, you'd want to talk about every wonderful story in it's the, so hard writing. yeah <laughs> oh dear um so collisions Fictions of the Future is available at our library. I just checked it out. It's got quite a holds list, so uh, patrons can um, place holds and get a copy of it. Um, but I wanted to pivot from Collisions and talk about um, what books you've been enjoying lately. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's such a cruel <laughs> question. Um, I love books. I love reading. I'm like so thrilled to be in conversation with the library that I'm like overwhelmed. <laughs> um, I started the year reading Memorial by Brian Washington, um, which is this incredible book um, about two men who are very much in love and the premise is that um, uh, one of their mothers is coming to stay um, but he, he realizes his dad is dying so he leaves and he leaves his boyfriend with the mother <laughs> and you kind of start off with this very like wild situation where they're trying to get to know each other and take care of each other but they're both like quite unlikable characters um, it's it's beautiful. I I'm not selling it very well. I loved it, <laughs> um, but I loved yeah. So Memorial of Brown Washington. I recently read um, Hot Milk by Deborah Levy, um, mm. and last night I read Stone Fruit by Lee Lai, which is this incredible graphic novel, and it will be out in May. Lee's an incredible graphic novelist and comics artist um mm. and I've been waiting like 11 years for this book and it's finally come out and it's just it's absolutely devastating um it's like it I think it got blurbed by O, o magazine Oprah's magazine wow <laughs> oh is, yeah I know I'm like a comics artist from Melbourne um I think that's really cool um what else? Uh, I recently had the opportunity to talk to Viet Thanh Nguyen, who just came out with The Committed, um, a, a sequel to The Sympathizer, which won the Pulitzer Award. Um, mm. And he kind of considers the war in Vietnam and the, like, implication, who is implicated in that war, but, like, through the eyes of a, of a double agent. It's... It's phenomenal if you haven't if you haven't read it. Wonderful. Well, there's plenty of great recommendations in there for people to follow up on. Um, are there any books that you feel have been pivotal to your creative and professional life? Oh my gosh, um, I have to talk about Asian Australian writers um, 
because they just really changed my sense of what Australian writing could be and mm. what it could look like. And there are so many of them. I think there are, we're getting more and more press, but they've always been here. Um, yeah. I really do love, I absolutely love the work of Julie Coe who wrote Portable Curiosities, um, which I think it came out in 2017. Um, her sense of what a short story can be is just really capacious and, like, she creates these, like, meticulously crafted worlds. I, yeah, I can't wait until her next book. Um, who else? There's oh, another wonderful short story writer is Elizabeth Tan, who recently published Smart Ovens for Lonely People and that won a few awards last year. Um, she's, yeah, she's also phenomenal. She twists this future kind of that has already arrived, this dystopia we live in, with one that is kind of in the process of arriving. They're like really wacky stories, but they they have a true sensitivity um, to the, I guess, the human condition. Um, so like, I think, yeah, just like, being really inspired and having my brain cracked open by these like contemporary <laughs> Asian yeah I know it's very violent <laughs> yes. Love <it>. oh gosh <laughs> um yeah just being really inspired by these Asian Australian writers hasn't like really pivotal to my creative and professional life I would say yeah. because it they make me think differently about the world and they make me want to read more by Asian Australians and just writers of colour. Um, it, it's such a breath of fresh air. Thank you so much for all those recommendations, Leah. <laughs> um, I wanted to finish up just by asking, I'm sure we'd have a lot of listeners that would in some capacity like to know more or um, perhaps even submit work to Liminal. <laughs> Is there an avenue for people, um, or particularly young people, to get involved? Oh, definitely. We love working with young people and even just emerging writers. You don't have to be young. <laughs> so you can visit our website at www.liminal.com and you can contact us to pitch um, or we're on Instagram at liminalmag and Twitter, the same. Um, yeah, get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Um, Love to work with new talent, always. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Leah. Aw, thanks, Lee. It's been a joy. And now, two book reviews by library staff Aisha and Rosanna. Inspired by the experiences in her travels, Clergy Coleman, a Noongar woman, set out to write something new while journeying across the continent. Her book, Terranellius, explores an invasion of so-called Australia, but not the way we know it to be. Coleman's clever use of science fiction makes it difficult to discern what is and isn't real, drawing very explicit parallels with Australia's colonial history, missions, exploitation, and the concept of Terranalius, nobody's land. As the story develops, you're confronted with alternating perspectives from settler to native. The didactic narrative reveals just how disturbing some of the justifications made by colonisers are, while also stressing the importance of resistance. 
It's through the honesty of this story that we discover remarkable truths of our own past in between the spaces of time. Terra Nullius teaches us the essence of humanity, power and rebellion. Is it really a work of science fiction? You be the judge. You can borrow Terra Nullius from City of Greater Dandenong Libraries or listen to the audiobook on Overdrive with your library account. Hi, my name is Rosanna and I will be reviewing The Book of Delights by Ross Gay. It is a book of short little chapters and poetic musings that the author wrote throughout one year of his life. He challenged himself to write down something that delighted him every day and this book is the result. After a year of adjusting to life in a global pandemic, I found this book to be a refreshing reminder to enjoy the little things and be mindful of the beauty and joy in the world. Ross Gay takes particular note of the natural world, his garden, insects, animals, and describes them with poetic beauty. I found a lot of joy in my garden last year and these chapters really spoke to me. I first heard about this book on the podcast, This American Life, on an episode they called The Show of Delights. The episode was inspired by Gay's book and contains excerpts read aloud throughout the episode. They framed this podcast as radical counter-programming in dark and combative times. So if you would like a taste of the book before reading the whole thing, this would be a great episode to listen to. I would highly recommend reading the Book of Delights as well as listening to the Show of Delights. Both bring a spirit of joy and mindfulness to everyday occurrences that can be invigorating and refreshing amidst a depressing news cycle. Some of my favourite delights in the book are those about plants and gardening. Ross Gay has quite the green thumb and cherishes his garden. There is one story about carrying a tomato seedling through an airport and on a plane that really tickled me. I grew tomatoes over summer, some which I got as seedlings from friends, others I germinated myself from seed, and I spoke to them all like my little babies, my little plant babies in the garden. Gardening and talking to tomatoes might not be your thing, but there is a little something for everyone in this book. Lastly, Mina's Bookmatch this month highlighting translated stories. Bookmatch is a reader's advisory service the library offers to help you find your next read. This bookmatch was put together for a patron who is interested in world stories, literary books and horror. Although it's useful to get a lot of information to help you choose somebody's next read or build their curated list, the beauty of doing so when you've been given just a little bit of information about what they do and don't like is the license this gives you to be creative with your interpretations of genres and styles. For example, I know this reader likes horror, and in their list I have included books about ghosts and monsters, as well as very literal horrors such as colonialism, dictatorships, technology and surveillance, child trafficking and domestic violence. All of these fit within my definition of horror in various ways. That is, they all explore the murkier side of human behaviour and reflect concerns of and threats to society, whether they are portrayed literally or figuratively. So, let's get to the list. The first book I chose is Ika Kuniawan's book Beauty is a Wound, a book from 2002, translated from the Indonesian by Annie Tucker and published in English in 2015. The blurb reads... Beauty is a Wound combines history, satire, family tragedy, legend, humour and romance in an astonishing epic novel. 
in which undead sex worker Dewi Ayu and her four daughters are beset by every violence and monstrosity. Kuniawan's gleefully grotesque hyperbole is a scathing critique of his young nation's troubled past. The rapacious offhand greed of colonialism, the chaotic struggle for independence, the 1965 mass murders, followed by three decades of Sahato's despotic rule. The novel draws on local sources, folk tales and the all-night shadow puppet plays of Wayang Kulit, with their bawdy wit, and is inspired by Melville and Gogol. Beauty as a Wound is passionate and ironic, exuberant and confronting. Kuniawan also wrote acclaimed novel Man Tiger and has been compared to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Salman Rushdie and Pramudia, Indonesia's most well-known literary writer. The second book I have on the list is Mina Kandasami's When I Hit You, which was included on several best-of lists in 2017 and shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction, the Jalak Prize for Writers of Colour and the Hindu Literary Prize. The following description comes from the writer's website. Seduced by politics, poetry and an enduring dream of building a better world together, the unnamed narrator falls in love with a university professor. Moving with him to a rain-washed town, she swiftly learns that for what for her is a beautiful bond of love is for him a contract of ownership. As he sets about reducing her to his idealised version of an obedient wife, bullying her and devouring her ambition of being a writer in the process, she attempts to push back, a resistance he resolves to break with violence and rape. At once the chronicle of an abusive marriage and a celebration of the invincible power of art, When I Hit You is a smart, fierce and courageous take on wedlock in modern India. I thought it's worth adding here a section of a review that particularly resonated with Kandasami, written by Deepa D for The Wire. You can find the link to the full review in the show notes. Like climate change, domestic abuse is pervasive, inescapable and universal. Either you know what it's like to have a home become unsafe, or you know someone who does, or you're part of the problem with your ignorance that disinvites confidence sharing. If the latter, this book can teach you without perpetuating the hurt you would cause if you asked a survivor in the flesh to testify in the court of your uninformed opinion. If the former, you don't have to read it, certainly not, and do what you need to avoid being triggered. But I suspect you will want to. The sorority of survivors can be a lonely one. It is good to hear from one of us whose words were strong enough to carry her out. The third one on the list is Gin on the Purple Line by Deepa Anapara, published in 2020 and long listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2020, shortlisted for the JCB 2020 Prize and won the Edgar Award for Best Novel in 2020 and the Lucy Cavendish College Fiction Prize for Fiction in 2019. Nine-year-old Jai watches too many reality cop shows thinks he's smarter than his friend Pari, even though she always gets top marks, and considers himself to be a better boss than Faiz, even though Faiz is the one with a job. When a boy at school goes missing, Jai decides to use the crime-solving skills he has picked up from episodes of Police Patrol to find him. With Pari and Faiz by his side, Jai ventures into some of the most dangerous parts of the sprawling Indian city, the bazaar at night, and even the railway station at the end of the Purple Line. But kids continue to vanish, and the trio must confront terrified parents, an indifferent police force, and soul-snatching gins in order to uncover the truth. The fourth in the list is called Little Eyes, written in the Spanish by Samantha Schweblin, long-listed for the Booker Prize in 2020, and on so many of the best-of lists for 2020. 
The English translation is by Megan McDowell. The blurb reads, They've infiltrated homes in Hong Kong, shops in Vancouver, the streets of Sierra Leone, town squares of Oaxaca, schools in Tel Aviv, and bedrooms in Indiana. They're not pets, nor ghosts, nor robots. They're real people. But how can a person living in Berlin walk freely through the living room of someone in Sydney? How can someone in Bangkok have breakfast with your children in Buenos Aires without you knowing? Especially when these people are completely anonymous, unknown, untraceable. The characters in Samantha Schweblin's wildly imaginative new novel, Little Eyes, reveal the beauty of connection between far-flung souls, but they also expose the ugly truth of our increasingly linked world. Trusting strangers can lead to unexpected love, playful encounters and marvellous adventures. But what if it can also pave the way for unimaginable terror? Schweblin has created a dark and complex world that is both familiar but also strangely unsettling. Because it's our present and we're living it, we just don't know it yet. Schweblin's previous novella Fever Dream was widely acclaimed and can be read in a sitting, a highly recommended psychological thriller inspired by the ecological crisis in Argentina. Number five on the list is Frankenstein in Baghdad, written by Iraqi writer Ahmed Sadawi and published in Arabic in 2013. It was then translated into English by Jonathan Wright and the English version published in 2018. It won the International Prize for Arabic Fiction in 2014. From the rubble-strewn streets of US-occupied Baghdad, the scavenger Hadi collects human body parts and stitches them together to create a corpse. His goal, he claims, is for the government to recognise the parts as people and give them a proper burial. But when the corpse goes missing, a wave of eerie murders sweeps the city and reports stream in of a horrendous-looking criminal who, though shot, cannot be killed. Hadi soon realises he has created a monster, one that needs human flesh to survive, first from the guilty and then from anyone who crosses its path. And the sixth and final book on my list is by Kamel Daoud, The Mersol Investigation. Originally written in French by Algerian writer Kamel Daoud and published in 2013, the book was translated by John Cullen and published in English in 2015. Daoud has said he intended it as a dialogue with Albert Camus' The Outsider. From the blurb, he was the brother of the Arab killed by the infamous Meursault, the anti-hero of Camus' classic novel. Angry at the world and his own unending solitude, he resolves to bring his brother out of obscurity by giving him a name, Musa, and a voice, and by describing the events that led to his senseless murder on a dazzling Algerian beach. A worthy compliment to its great predecessor, the Meursault investigation is not only a profound meditation on Arab identity and the disastrous effects of colonialism in Algeria, but also a stunning work of literature told in a unique and affecting voice. And something extra from the author on that book. Daoud says he sees his novel as complementing and continuing Camus' novel. My novel takes off from The Stranger, but it also uses The Stranger as a pretext for questioning myself and to find out who I am in the world today. If you'd like your own curated list, go to the bookmatch link in the show notes and make contact. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. You can check out the show notes for more information on all the items we mentioned in the podcast, and you can place holds on them via the Libraries Victoria app or at our website, greaterdananong.vic.gov.au forward slash libraries. Okay, go. Knock, knock. Who's there? 
Animate who? Uh, yeah, no. <laughs>